0: There's something very magical about having your eye pulled skyward constantly. Who needs mountains when you have clouds?
1: Hello and welcome to The Common Room, a series of conversations between members of the Yale English Department. I'm Steph Newell. It's my great pleasure today to be talking to John Durham Peters, Maria Rosa Menonca, Professor of English and of Film and Media Studies here at Yale. He's the author of numerous books and articles, all of which fizz and sparkle with originality. These include Speaking into the Air, A History of the Idea of Communication, Courting the Abyss, Free Speech and the Liberal Tradition, the Marvelous Clouds Toward a Philosophy of Elemental Media, and most recently, a book he co-authored with the late Kenneth Kimiel, Promiscuous Knowledge, Information, Image, and Other Truth Games in History. Currently, John is working on a media history of weather. Welcome to the podcast, John.
0: Thank you, Steph. So good to be here.
1: Can you tell me a bit about your background?
0: I was born in Utah, but grew up in New England and didn't like it. In college, I wanted to be an English professor, and one of my father's colleagues, who is a a very interesting man, a, a socialist, told me, this is 1975, don't do that, there aren't any jobs. It's a social sin to train PhDs when there aren't jobs for them. And so maybe this germ sat with me because I ended up getting out of English, which is what I really wanted to study, and ended up going into media studies. And lo and behold, I ended up back in New England as an English professor. So life has its twisty ironies.
1: On this sunny day in New Haven, can you talk about the weather or rather media history and weather?
0: I love talking about the weather and I am mystified why in the modern world we persuaded ourselves that talking about the weather is something that is stupid to do. There's nothing as fascinating or dramatic or compelling as the weather. This book is basically trying to understand how we made the weather banal, something which has been such a topic of literature, religion, science, art, painting, music, and so on, and started to pretend somehow in the 19th century, mostly, is that weather is something that we sophisticated city folk don't talk about precisely because we live within our well-upholstered comfort in which we don't have to worry about it. And this is obviously highly dangerous in a time of climate change if we don't have a vocabulary for talking about weather. So this is basically another genealogy of of how modernity went bad.
1: On that topic, many of us refer to clouds to describe something negative or something that obstructs clarity. I'm thinking of clouding as a a metaphor for obstruction. And when we think about clouds, they may or may not have a silver lining. But you described them as marvellous. So is there a story about how you came to see clouds as marvellous?
0: I came to see clouds as marvelous from living in Iowa. As I said, I I was born in Utah, and I spent many times in Utah. And I love the mountains. There's something very magical about being surrounded by mountains, by having your eye pulled skyward constantly. And in Iowa, there aren't mountains. There are agribusiness cornfields, which go forever. Yet, there are the most amazing clouds, especially in the summertime when you have this amazing, just sweltering, almost oppressive heat which sits on the land and which you know produces these clouds which go up 5-10 miles and produce the most beautiful formations. And I realise, who needs mountains when you have clouds?
1: I've noticed in the classroom that students often seem shy of talking about their religious faith. And even, even when the texts that they're studying do that explicitly, Given your writings about Mormonism, I wonder if you could talk about why that is and what kind of spaces are available for people of faith in a liberal arts, English literature classroom?
0: I think people of faith are typically intense readers. You know, not all faith traditions take the text seriously, but certainly the tradition that I come from basically says you've got to read your scriptures and you've got to read them daily and you've got to ponder them. You've got to meditate. You've got to think about them. And then you get together and you talk about them and you read them. And so the, the kind of stakes of reading are highly intensified. The styles of reading are also highly intensified because words, you know, one word can make the difference in your salvation, or one word can make the difference in how you live your day. And So the idea of literature as equipment for living, a good Kenneth Burke line, seems completely natural for someone who's been raised up in a kind of rigorous scriptural tradition. And furthermore, I mean, I, I think this point goes back to Milton, if not longer, is that the attitude, the poetic attitude, is also an attitude of faith, of openness, of waiting and seeing, of suspending disbelief, of sort of imagining what if. When you read a poem, when you read a novel, you, you say, what if? You know What if I allowed this world to be true? And that's what believers do. Now, sometimes we think that believers have it easy because they can just turn off all the doubts. I think believers have it harder. Maybe this is a self-flattering view because you just turn up the heat. You make it worse for yourself because you realize, what if this were true? What if this were really true? And you've got to kind of think this through. So I think these are are attitudes which can flourish even in a secular literature classroom.
1: You've advised or co-advised a huge number of doctoral dissertations, Is there anything you'd say to an aspiring PhD student based on all your experience of working with graduate students?
0: One piece of advice I would have is that a professor doesn't need to be on your committee to be someone that you stay in touch with. I've had relationships with students who were not I was not on their committee. They didn't even have classes with me. But those relationships have gone on to yield fruit in various ways. We've collaborated on different things. I even tried to hire someone who is a student I used to talk to. He never took a class from me at Iowa. So I would say think broadly about the kinds of relationships that you have. Another thought is it's sometimes better to study what you like rather than what you love. If you study what you love, the stakes are too high. But if you can adjust to study something which is interesting and enough to kind of create a professional platform or foundation for you, you'll have decades to study what you love and you can kind of evolve into it. It's only relatively later in my career that I started you know, studying and writing about religion more explicitly, even though that has always been a very central interest of mine. I think that my work was better early on by suppressing that interest so that it allowed that interest to speak itself. Subliminally. A third piece of advice is that it's really important to anchor your world outside of the university. Because if your heart and soul are in the university, you're gonna get tossed and turned by the petty politics and the worries and the kind of thunderdome, you know, terrors that you create for yourself and wondering about why did that happen? Or why are our hallways so quiet? Is this an unwelcoming environment for me? And it's so easy to kind of spin out all these horrifying scenarios. But if you have an anchorage in a family, in a ultimate Frisbee group, in a church, in a service community, in a political party, you need one foot outside of this institution.
1: Do you have a favorite piece of music? Can you tell us what it is and why it's your
0: favorite? It's so painful to choose just one. And my favorite music changes day by day. But today I'm going with Zombie by Fayla Kuti. In part because I think musical choices are public choices. They're things that we that we share. And this is one which is so contagious and so just compelling in its slow burn, the way that it builds. And I also love Fela's political bravery at this moment in Nigerian history, making such a gorgeous piece of of art, which is also a radical piece of political protest, I find utterly exciting and compelling.
1: Now, what is on the horizon for you? Have you got something coming up that excites you?
0: I am probably going to go on a hike today to Charles Island, which is an island which is only accessible in the winter months off of Silver Sand State Park. And it's only accessible at low tide, so you have to watch the uh, tide chart. But it's a very uncanny feeling because there's there's a sandbar that you can walk out. And so you're kind of out what feels like in the middle of the ocean walking to this island to kind of be in the New England world of of cloud and sky and sand and sea and land all at once. I'm looking forward to doing that today.
1: Well, thank you, John. And I don't want to hold you up anymore. And thanks for listening to The Common Room. Our producer is Robert Scaramuccia, class of 19, and our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. You also heard Zombie by Fela Kuti.